Well, we come now to the last message in Romans. Can you believe it? Number 49, according to my list. I thought about uh, breaking up this passage just for a good round number of 50, but but I'm kind of ready to be done with it too. And I'm excited for uh, for where we go from here. I want to let you know that um, next week is going to be a really unusual Sunday here at LifePoint. I hope you I, I hope that you will prioritize this Sunday and and really, well, I want you to prioritize every Sunday, right? I mean, what? Who am I kidding? But but I really would ask you to prioritize the weeks between now and Easter. And Easter, Lord willing. <laughs> It's going to be our grand opening at our new building. But between now and then, we're going to, the, the next series of sermons is, is really designed to uh, prepare us as a church for that transition and uh, in as many ways as we can be prepared. Um, and so I hope, that, I hope that you'll be here because we're going to talk about uh, the kind of church that, uh, that I think God wants us to be as we as we move into this next chapter of of our life as a church um, hope you'll open your bible this morning uh there are bibles in the aisles you can grab one of those uh, if you have uh, an electronic device you can turn on your bible uh, be turned on by your bible and uh and so do that and then in your program this morning is a sermon notes form and uh, i just kind of went crazy on the, the blanks just as a last hurrah, like fireworks. Just lots of lots of blanks for those of you who love blanks. For those of you who hate filling in blanks, uh, I'm sorry, and you can just find your own piece of paper. So Romans 16, beginning of verse 17, is our tradition here at LifePoint to stand and honor God's word as we read it. Let's read it together. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So last week I didn't make you read any of those hard names, but this morning I just thought 
I would give you a little taste. In uh, verses 17 to 19, Paul, Paul begins with an exhortation. He exhorts the, the Roman believers. I didn't say extorts, I said exhorts. And his exhortation is this, watch out, watch out for false teachers. We might ask, why Paul? We'll get another look at verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Now notice that that Paul answers the question why as he identifies two outcomes of false teaching in particular. And the first is divisiveness. The second is the false teacher's creation of obstacles or stumbling blocks that are the product of perverted doctrine. Well, let's look first at the problem of causing divisions. When he wrote to his friend Titus, Paul instructed Titus about how he should respond to divisive people in the local church. And he said, As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. A deceived church is a fractious church. A deceived church is a church that breaks into factions. And Paul describes the responsibility that falls to each of us as Christ followers when he wrote to the church in Ephesus. And and as I read this, I want you to notice the highly relational tone of Paul's expressions, the words that he chose to use. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, if every Christian was without sin, if every Christian was not an irritating human being, then things like humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another in love would not be necessary. Am I right? I mean, Paul wouldn't have to bring it up because we'd all just be getting along so famously. But we are sinful, and we do rub each other the wrong way. And so walking in a manner worthy of our calling requires that the church must be a community of grace. And each of us must give ourselves, Paul says, to preserving the unity that the Spirit of God is trying to work in us. 
In other words, we're going to forgive each other. And when we offend each other, we're going to ask forgiveness out of hearts of humility. And when that forgiveness is requested, we're going to grant it to each other. It doesn't mean we're going to gloss over conflict. It doesn't mean we're going to just laugh in the face of offense. But it means we're going to work through things together because our end goal is always to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And the person that Paul's talking about here, I think, who stirs up division is not a person who offends someone, whether intentionally or unintentionally, but then seeks forgiveness for that out of a heart of sincerity. That's not who Paul's talking about here because if Paul, if that person responded because he says after warning him once and then twice, most believers, most maturing believers are going to respond to that warning. They're going to say, yeah, I need to change my ways. I need to change my manner of relationship. Uh, I, I need to check myself. That's not the person he's talking about. The person who stirs up division is the person who doesn't respond that way. And he was just a, a loose cannon in the church. And we're not necessarily even talking about the person with an obtuse personality that just offends everybody. We're talking about people who, who uh, are intentional and intent on stirring up division, of creating division, of creating factions in the church. Second problematic outcome of the false teachers Paul's thinking of here in Romans 16 is stumbling blocks, stumbling blocks, a perverted teaching that results in uh, biblical understanding and spiritual growth, the things that the Holy Spirit is working in their hearts and the hearts and lives of believers is tripped up, it's, it's interrupted, it's confused. The word there for obstacles is the word scandalon. And it, and, and it described ro- a rock sticking up out of the ground on a pathway that we trip over, that we stumble over, that causes injury. Here in the Northwest, it would be a, a root across the path or a log that's fallen across the trail. Stumbling, the thing that causes stumbling, confusion. And here's what Jude, who we believe is the brother of Jesus, had to say about false teachers. Jude 1 Verses 3 and 4, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Contend for the faith. And Paul's instruction to the Roman believers regarding those people who were divisive in the church, subverting the gospel, was simple and to the point, actively separate yourselves from them. Actively separate yourselves from them. Literally, Romans 16, verse 17b, avoid them. Put distance between yourself and people like that. And again, we ask the question, okay, maybe the answer seems obvious, but why, Paul? 
He says, for such persons, verse 18, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the who? The naive. The naive. So Paul's saying, you need to be discerning. Discerning. Notice what he says in verse 19. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. You're doing so well in so many areas, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Wise as to what is good, innocent as to what is evil. Now Jesus said something very similar to his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, where he said, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Wise and innocent. Well, sheep is who we are, unfortunately. <laughs> and we share our habitat, our habitat with wolves who wish to do us harm because we're followers of Jesus. And, and uh, one of... Satan's primary weapons is deception, false teaching. He wants us to be discerning. When Paul was about to depart the city of Ephesus, he said to the elders of the church, now these are the elders, these are those who are charged with the spiritual oversight of the congregation. He said to them, pay careful attention to yourselves, to yourselves first, and to all the flock, all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. In other words, however you got to be an overseer in the church, it wasn't simply by your design or your choice or somebody's congregational decision. You are there because the Holy Spirit made that possible, because the Holy Spirit put you in that place. And your role then is to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. No small thing that he has placed us over. And I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. So elders understand that that the wolves aren't just out there, they're in here. They're going to come from there, they're going to come from there, and they're going to come from here. They're, they're among you. And they're going to arise, and they're going to speak twisted things. Why? To draw away the disciples after them. Division. Divide the church. Therefore, be alert, be discerning. Biblical scholar and pastor Robert Mounts wrote in his commentary on this passage, this very... Brief statement, beware of the glib tongue and the deceptive argument. I was tempted this morning to name names. I mean, not of people within this church. You'd be glad for that, right? That'd be kind of extreme. That'd wake us up, though, wouldn't it? I thought about naming names of people you know 
names you'd recognize. Uh, pastors and leaders of churches that are, have national and international prominence that were once solid churches that have drifted into apostasy and into false teaching. And, and I decided not to do that, not because I don't think you should know who they are. I do think you should know who they are. But in this context, this morning, if I named a name of a person that that you knew and I told, said, told you they were false teachers and you were mad at me about that because you love them, you wouldn't hear another word I said the rest of the morning. Well, how can we be discerning disciples of Jesus? I think there are three valuable tests right here in this passage either stated overtly or implied, that we can apply when we encounter new teachings. I want to say new teachings. There's really no new heresy. It's, it's mostly old stuff that's being recycled for a new naive generation. It's old stuff. It's ancient stuff. Satan is not masterfully creative. So three tests. The first is the biblical test. The biblical test. And the question here is, does it agree with Scripture? Because what we want to do is we want to measure what we hear from a teacher against the balance of the Word of God. We want to measure what they teach against the Gospel. And I hope that you have heard me say to you on a number of occasions, you should be doing that with me every, every week. You should be saying, is what Pastor Jim is teaching us Consistent with the whole of Scripture. Sound doctrine originates with God. False doctrine originates with someone or something created by God. Satan is not the yang to God's yin. He is not an equal counterpart. He is a created being. His power is infinitely less than God's. But in comparison to us, his power is infinitely greater than ours. We need to realize that. So we ask the question, does this doctrine originate with God or has it been fabricated by someone or something else that has been tainted by sin? Sound doctrine... Next, grounds its authority within the Bible. False doctrine grounds its authority outside the Bible. So often when you're hearing a deceptive teaching, is someone who is discounting what the Bible says or trying to dress up what it says to say something else. So the test is this, does this doctrine appeal to the Bible for its authority? Or does it appeal to another scripture or another presumed authority? And sometimes that presumed authority, you'll hear it's expressed this way, God spoke to me and he told me that instead of this, you should do that. And you go, that doesn't smell right, doesn't sound right. And usually when it doesn't smell right or sound right, it's not right. I found these golden tablets underneath a tree. 
and started reading about me. Sound doctrine is consistent with the whole of Scripture. False doctrine is inconsistent with some parts of Scripture. I don't remember most of what I studied in school, do you? But here's one thing I remember from one of my professors, and it was just a helpful distinction. He said, you, you, need, to dis- you need to distinguish what is scriptural from what is biblical. And I, I thought, what? The more I thought about that, the more it really began to make some sense to me, because there's a difference between a teaching that may be scriptural. That is, you may find something in the scripture, uh, and, and, uh, but teaching that's biblical, that is, um, teaching this biblical is found in the whole of Scripture. And you may have heard the expression that you can make the Bible say anything you want it to say. And that's kind of true. You can take this Scripture and that Scripture and you stack them together and it sounds right, but it's off. Why? Because I found this thing over here in the Bible and boy, that makes a whole lot of sense to me. And look at that teaching. That's pretty cool. But when compared against the whole of Scripture, this one starts looking pretty anemic, pretty false. Is, it, is that teaching supported by the prophets, by the apostles, by Jesus? That's the question. The, the major truths of Scripture are, are just ring right down through history, right down through from Genesis to Revelation. The major truths sing out to us, yell to us. So here's the test. Is a particular teaching, a particular doctrine, established or refuted by the entirety of Scripture? Again, Jude said, contend, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And the faith that he's talking about there is the body of sound doctrine taught by Jesus and the apostles echoing the prophets. It's not the same thing as church traditions. It's not the same thing as the teaching of the Pope or some other authority. It's what the Bible teaches. Sola Scriptura. It's what the Bible teaches has always taught from Genesis to Revelation. Finally, sound doctrine contributes powerfully to spiritual health. False doctrine leads to spiritual weakness and, by the way, surprise, surprise, divisiveness. A deceived church is a divisive church. Sound doctrine makes spiritually healthy, mature, knowledgeable, therefore discerning Christians. False doctrine makes spiritually unhealthy, immature, ignorant, divisive Christians who, in fact, may be no Christians at all. Then there's the Christological test. Well, that's a big word, but so I spelled it out for you. Christological test. Does it glorify the Lord Jesus? Does it teach and glorify Jesus? Sound doctrine exalts Jesus Christ as Lord. It lifts him up. Is this teacher serving Christ or serving himself? And if you'll commit yourself to listening to a teacher long enough with this question in mind, it won't be long before you find your answer. However fine-sounding a teacher is, 
seek to discern whether they are in it for themselves or to give themselves in obedience to Jesus. Listen carefully for who they say Jesus is, whether their teaching and their personal lifestyle proceeds to give Jesus Christ his rightful place as God's Son and the only Savior and Lord. And third, there's the moral test. The moral test. Does it promote moral purity? Moral goodness. Sound doctrine has value for godly living. False doctrine leads to ungodly living. Inevitably. Maybe not immediately, but eventually. Its effect will be immorality. Truth never stands on its own. It always has implications for life. Otherwise, it's just head knowledge. Again, back to Jude. He says of the false teachers that have crept into the church that they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. In other words, they use grace as a cover for self-indulgence, whether of a sexual nature or otherwise. Self-indulgence. Well, God will forgive me. So let's go on sinning so that grace may increase. And didn't Paul just talk about that a few chapters back? It's an amazing thing, you know, when, and I, I think you'll understand what I say when I say this. So many false teachers that we know that are prominent, if you dig very deep into their lives, you're going to find some sexual immorality. You're going to find some gross self-indulgence. This kind of goes with the territory. Well, in verse 20 then, Paul encourages the Roman believers. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Some of you, as you were reading, thought you were about to sit down after we read this one. Seemed like the end. So why does Paul insert this statement here? Because I think it's this, that if we could pull back the veil, we would find that behind all divisive teaching, behind all deceptive teaching, stands Satan, the greatest liar of all. Jesus called him a liar and the father of lies. Satan was already defeated and defanged, if you will, at the cross. He's a roaring lion, but he's a toothless lion in relationship to believers. He is being defeated and will one day be ultimately subdued and defeated, but he has not yet conceded his defeat. He's on a leash, but the day is coming when he will receive his due. Paul's use of the word crush here God of peace will soon crush Satan, the the deceiver, under your feet. Takes us all the way back to the Garden of Eden. After Adam and Eve had sinned in the Garden, God declared to them the consequence of their sin, and in doing so, he said to the serpent, the personification of Satan, the, the tempter, the deceiver, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And the English language doesn't 
give us this information, but the word offspring there in the Hebrew is in the singular. One particular offspring. One particular descendant. He, again, singular, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And the day is coming, God said, when one special descendant of the woman would deliver a crushing blow to the head of the serpent. Jesus is that serpent crusher. And and I love the fact that immediately, immediately, upon the devastating uh, event of their sin, after everything had been so beautiful and pristine and good, very good in all of creation. Now there's sin. And now there's distancing between the man and the woman, between them and God, and there's hiding and there's covering. God declares in instantly that he's going to solve the problem. He's going to send a redeemer who would deal with the problem of sin and and deal with the source of sin. He's going to crush the head of the serpent. Jesus bruised the head of Satan at the cross. He will, with ultimate, stunning, decisive finality, crush his head when he comes again. And God's people share in that victory. And each time someone transfers their trust to Christ, from all that other nonsense that we want to trust in, to Christ alone, Each time someone receives the gift of righteousness and justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, Satan suffers yet another defeat. And yet all of that is just a precursor to the final one. Paul and friends extend greetings there in verses 21 to 24 to the Roman believers. Talks about Timothy, who was his uh, very prominent protege, uh, we don't know as much about Lucius and Jason and Sosipater. He says, my kinsmen, they're Jewish brothers. Tertius, who was uh, Paul's ghost writer. We think that Paul probably had very bad eyesight. There's some indicators of that. And so he has this man that he dictates to, and Tertius is writing the letter. He says, hey, Paul, can I put my name in here? Yeah, okay, go ahead. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. And then there's Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, he says. Gaius greets you, Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Um, you know, and sometimes in these lists we kind of go, oh, we can just skip over that. that. We didn't do that last week, right? And we, we saw some pretty cool things. But the thing that I'm reminded of here with Paul is that it takes a lot of people to make the mission of the church go. Paul gets all the, you know, he gets all of the, the marquee um, billing, he gets all the credit. And yet behind him are all these men and women who are faithful and consistent and servants of the Lord. And uh, there's great encouragement in that. We, don't, we wouldn't know their names unless they were listed here. But, the, but again, as I said last week, we stand on the shoulders of millions and millions of faithful men and women down through the centuries. And, and, if, and if they hadn't lived the lives that they had lived and made the commitments that they made, and if Christ had not saved them and put his spirit in them, you and I wouldn't be here today. We would never have had the opportunity to hear the gospel. 
Finally, in verses 25 and 26, Paul exalts the gospel itself. He says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. Now to him who is able to strengthen you. The word there is, is really establish. God is able to establish you. And he writes first in, in this doxology of the power of God. His power is available first to save you. Paul told us in Romans 1.16 that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. But it's also the power to spiritually strengthen and stabilize us. To set our feet, as the psalmist said, upon a rock. In Psalm 40 You lifted me out of the miry clay and set my feet upon a rock. You established me. You saved me. And then you established me. And that's what God does when he he saves us from our sin and then he puts our feet on a solid rock. The gospel is not only the entry point of the Christian life. We often think of it just in that way. We need to broaden our understanding of the role, the function of the gospel. Because not only is it the entry point, but it's also the way that you and I continue to grow in Christ and enjoy life with him. In fact, the whole of the Christian life really is the discovery of of the ongoing implications of the gospel, the ripple effect of the gospel in our lives and the lives of people around the world. And Paul refers to three means here by which God strengthens us or establishes us. And the first is according to my gospel, and the second is the preaching of Jesus Christ. Now, to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. And you go, well, what's up, Paul? You're just your gospel? I mean, who are you, right? Your gospel? Just talking about the same things. The gospel that was entrusted to him to proclaim to us. The preaching of Jesus Christ. And these first two sources of strengthening are, are just nearly identical. They're, they're functionally indistinguishable. Paul's gospel was a proclamation of the good news about Jesus Christ. In fact, in Romans 1, and it's the title of our sermon series, the, the gospel of God concerning his son. And the third means of establishing us here that is listed uh, is according to the revelation of the mystery. And that's uh, a typo in your Sermon notes form there. According to the revelation of the mystery. The gospel is revealed truth. It's revealed truth. It's not discovered truth. You understand the difference? What I mean by that is it's not something that you stumbled upon one day. You went, oh wow, here's a thought. That didn't happen that way. You would never have thought about it. Because it's all about exalting Jesus and not you. But it is about saving you. It is about rescuing you. It's not something you just happened onto by sheer good fortune. It is revealed truth. It's revealed now because God chose to make it known. God chose to reveal it to us. 
says in verse 25, he calls it the, the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, hidden for long ages past. Hidden for long ages past. Colossians 1, 26 to 28, Paul described the gospel this way, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. See, the issue here is revelation. It's, it's God opening the eyes of our hearts. It's God illuminating the gospel so that we could see it. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. And this mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. There it is. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Hidden for long ages past, now revealed, he says, now revealed through the prophetic writings. When you say, well, it's through the prophetic writings, then it's been there all along. Yeah. Jesus, in, in one of his wonderfully uncontentious conversations with the Pharisees, said this to them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. In the scriptures. Kind of a, what I would call a bibliolatry, a worship of the Bible. You think that in the scriptures you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. He says, but you, you refuse to come to me to receive what I have to offer. You remember there were two guys uh, after the resurrection of Jesus, two disciples on the on a road to a village called Emmaus. And Jesus appeared to them. And in the midst of that conversation, it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Really? It's all been there all this time? Yeah. It just hadn't been revealed to you. God hadn't given you eyes to see it yet. See, it's in true that in Christ we have a, a new perspective on the Old Testament scriptures that we didn't have before. But the gospel has always been present there to be seen by those who are enabled by the Holy Spirit to see it. And so looking back, even, even back to the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, through the lens of the gospel, we understand that that Redeemer that would come, the one who would come to crush the head of the serpent is Jesus, that as he covered their nakedness with the skins of animals, that there was the shedding of blood required. It's Without the shedding of blood, the Bible says, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so beginning in the very earliest chapters of the Old Testament, there are images of the gospel. And from that point on, right through, right through the prophet Malachi, the Italian prophet, or Malachi, <laughs> the gospel is there. Check out some, some, like Psalm 22. Check out Isaiah 53. And check out the whole prophet Isaiah. It's all, all of the Old Testament is about Jesus. 
Remember that Paul said to Timothy that uh, from your childhood you have known the scriptures. What scriptures were those? The, the Old Testament. You've known the scriptures that, that can make you wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So all of that stuff that Timothy had been raised on, all, all of that Old Testament scripture was a preparation to encounter Jesus and to trust in him. I've lost my place in my sermon. I'm just prattling on here. He says that it's now disclosed and made known to all nations so that they can receive it, they can believe it, they can obey it. It's essential that, that this third act, this third dynamic regarding the good news be, be understood and acted upon. See, there's no limit uh, on the beneficiaries of the gospel, is there? Not at all. The gospel is for men and women, boys and girls, from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Every skin color, every, every ethnicity, it, it must therefore be proclaimed to the ends of the earth, according to the command, Paul says, of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith. And we, we can understand the command of God through the lens of the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and earth, Jesus said, has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. See, the proper response to the gospel is faith, but it's a faith that is itself obedient and results in a life of obedience to Jesus. And it's a great test to, to apply to ourselves as Christians. Am I, am I growing in obedience? Sometimes I wonder, you know, am I really growing in obedience? I don't know. I, got, I still have a long ways to go. Not who I was. Not who I'm going to be. I'm in process. In exalting the gospel, then, Paul also glorifies the God of the gospel. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. He glorifies the God of the gospel. Notice he calls God here the only wise God. Like a lot of pastors, my pastor as a child, you know, he was stuck on one benediction. He had one and one only for the 17 years I was a part of that church, and, uh, 12 years, I guess, 11, I don't know. Seemed like forever. <laughs> and and we, we didn't have an out. We had to sit in church. But he always had the, the same one. It always started out to the only, uh, the only wise God, you know, and, and there was that phrase. And I used to think, as a child, I'd think, the only wise God. Does that mean there are a lot of gods and he's the only wise one? Or what does that mean? What Paul would tell us is that God's wisdom is seen in Christ himself. In whom, as Paul wrote to the believers in Colossae, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Above all, God's wisdom is seen in the cross of Christ, which, though foolishness to the world, Paul wrote, uh, to the church in Corinth, it's the wisdom of God. Foolishness to the world, but it's the wisdom of God. It's seen in God's decision to save the world, not through our own wisdom, but through the foolishness of the gospel. God's wisdom is seen in the extraordinary phenomenon of the, the ever-expanding multiracial, multicultural, multiethnic church. 
It's seen in, in his ultimate purpose to unite everything in heaven and earth under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And no wonder that Paul, back in chapter 11, broke out in praise about the, the wisdom of God. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. And it's no wonder that he does it again here at the close of the letter. God's people will spend all eternity, think about this, all eternity worshiping God, ascribing to him praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength. And Paul concludes very much in the place where he began this letter. The gospel is the gospel of God. This is God's thing. He initiated it. Sometimes we think of God the Father as the bad cop and Jesus the Son as the good cop, right? <laughs> That's a really bad way of thinking. God is the initiator. God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. God demonstrates his own love toward us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his Son as the atoning sacrifice for our sin. The gospel is the gospel of God. It's God's good news for the whole world. Don't miss the similarity. I'm not going to read it here because we're out of time, but, but don't miss the similarity between this closing paragraph and the one in which he began in chapter 1. Go back and read that. All of the major themes of Paul's letter are encapsulated here in this final doxology, this final eruption of praise. To him, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you that you looked beyond our sin, beyond our failing, and you addressed the deep need of our hearts and lives, not, a, not just us individually, but of the whole world because everything was corrupted by sin everything and everyone and in the gospel is the promise of forgiveness justification reconciliation restoration and Lord today we, we look forward to the day when, when Christ will come again for the church we long for that day. And let us be about the work of the gospel, the gospel of reconciliation. Until then. Glory to you, Father. In the church, in Christ Jesus, in all creation, forever and ever. Amen.